BCP Proper's podcast, a show where we discuss the proper lectionary readings of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. I'm your host, Stephen Wedgworth, the rector of Christ Church Anglican in South Bend, Indiana. We're a member of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. Now, you might consider this the beginning of season two of the podcast. Uh, Last season, I was joined by Clayton Hutchins, and he and I went through the second half of the church year called Trinity Season. Going forward, it's going to be just me, solo, so we'll see how it goes. Clayton is uh, going in a new direction with his vocation, and I thought that given that and also the challenges of do-it-yourself podcasting, it would be better for me to do a solo series for the near future. So this is the beginning of season two, and we'll begin the new church year soon with Advent leading us up to Christmas. But before I jumped right into that part of the lectionary, I thought it might be good to devote one episode to reintroducing the BCP lectionary. What is a lectionary, and why do I want to use the 1662 Book of Common Prayer? Well, a lectionary is simply a list of readings, particularly biblical readings, though older lectionaries, including the 1662, also have the deuterocanonicals at certain times, and we'll talk about those when they appear. But simply put, it's a list of books that are read in uh, the service or at home. Now, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is the standard for global Anglicanism. It's the Book of Common Prayer that became normative after the English Civil War and when the Church of England was restored back to Episcopacy and back to the form it had been prior to Cromwell and the Revolution. It's also the book that became uh, the sort of global worldwide BCP. It's the, the King James version of common prayer books. This would be the prayer book that you would have encountered in uh, the 17th, 18th, even 19th centuries. Uh, and even those modified prayer books that show up in America use the 1662 as their starting point. So that's one reason to focus on it. It's also become the prayer book for current global Anglicanism. If you've heard of uh, GAFCON, the Global Anglican Future Conference, or the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans, both of those groups have named the 1662 Book of Common Prayer as the authoritative standard, the prayer book that will norm other prayer books. And in my diocese, Anglican Diocese of Living Word, a member of the ACNA, we also name the 1662 BCP as our standard for worship. This doesn't mean that every parish uses it, but it means should there be a conflict or a controversy, the 1662 is the standard, the one which would measure and judge the others. And then finally, this is indeed the prayer book that I use at my church. Christ Church in South Bend was founded before I got here, so I actually learned this from the founders, certain lay members, one of whom has been involved in the publication of the international edition, uh, Professor Sam Bray. And I've learned from Sam and from others how to use this prayer book, and as we've implemented it in our regular worship as a church, I've come to love it. 
I've learned about the various features it offers, that it retains the historic one-year Western lectionary, no longer commonly used by modern liturgical movement churches. It also retains the Sunday first lessons from the Old Testament. These were uh, a contribution of Archbishop Parker under Queen Elizabeth. These are particular lessons from the Old Testament meant to be used every Sunday. And as you'll hear through the episodes, these are really, really great selections. They take you through the Old Testament, highlighting the arc of redemptive history, showing certain high points and certain low points. And they work together to further illuminate the New Testament readings and the theme of the Sunday, but they also work together to tell a connected, coherent story about all of Scripture, showing how the Old Testament was always pointing us to Christ, always leading us to that dramatic act of redemption which births the Christian era and secures our salvation. Only the 1662 Book of Common Prayer has those Sunday First lessons. And so working together, these are very compelling reasons why I think it is the best Book of Common Prayer to use all around. It also happens to preserve, in my opinion, the best of the Reformation heritage, and so it bolsters the sort of theological outlook that I would like to promote. But as you study history, you find out it wasn't a sectarian or partisan prayer book. Other schools within Anglicanism also used this prayer book. It would have been the prayer book known to the various high churchmen in England, would have been the prayer book used by those anti-Puritans. So even though I think it's a very Reformation-based prayer book that uh, supports and promotes uh, my own theological convictions, what I believe are the ultimate the teaching of the Scriptures, uh, it's, it's still the property of the whole Church of England, the whole Anglican heritage. So I hope that this uh, podcast would be one way for listeners to be introduced to the 1662 Book of Common Prayer and to see what I see in it, that it is uh, such a great asset for learning the Scriptures, for teaching us to pray, for forming our worship. Now, a few other things to say. I mentioned that uh, I'm using the international edition. That's important because uh, the American church had to stop using the 1662 for a very obvious reason. It was continuing to pray for King George and his successors. Uh, State prayers in the BCP are all for the monarch. And so the American church, after having fought a war of independence, needed rightly to modify that. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the modifications didn't stop there. They went a little bit too far. Uh, American prayer books always remove the Athanasian Creed, uh, a big loss in my opinion. They also tended to cut out certain statements that were deemed a little too much, a little too much emphasis on sin, perhaps, too many references to God's judgment, and even certain prayers that would have had uh, robust theological points, but points that were being called into question. Uh, At the founding of the Protestant Episcopal Church, you did have good, strong, orthodox churchmen, for sure. You also had churchmen that are now known as latitudinarian, who thought many of the theological debates were unimportant, unnecessary, we could agree to disagree. 
And unfortunately, they included in that such doctrines as original sin, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, even later the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, these sorts of things. Uh, obviously, not elements that we should allow to be up for debate. And so some of the edits you can see tend in that direction. And then later editions, 1928 and then into the 70s, show some of the influence of what's generically called Anglo-Catholicism. There are many sub-schools of that. Uh, and essentially you see kind of an alliance or a, a deal-making between the emerging liberal churchmen who have questions about Scripture, questions about sin, and the Catholicizing or ritualist party who want to add elements of what they see points of connection with a pre-Reformation era. And as those two parties work together, the edits tend to go in both those directions. And this even affects the lectionaries. They stop using the full lectionary that had been in the past. Certain books are not treated as well. Certain passages are skipped or omitted uh, and become optional. The 1662 is a way to get back before that happened. You can reclaim a fuller, larger lectionary. And the international edition happens to be one of the only places currently where you can get access to the original 1662 lectionaries. Even those prayer books, which say 1662 on them, published by Cambridge University Press, for example, they have newer lectionaries. They may not even note that it's a newer lectionary, but they were revised in 1871 and then in 1922. So to get the original 1662 lectionary, you'll need to use the international edition. And so that's going to be the prayer book for this podcast, and it is, again, the prayer book of my church. Now, that's your background, the nuts and bolts of different prayer books, perhaps a little Anglican inside baseball. So let's get now into the content of the lectionaries. What's so rich, so interesting about these lectionaries? A few things to note about the 1662. It has multiple lectionaries. There's the daily office, which you're reading every day. This was intended for public corporate reading, but also can be used at home by individuals. And this just starts at the beginning of the civic year in January, and it moves consecutively through the scriptures. The morning first lesson is from the Old Testament, Genesis 1 on January 1st, and the second lesson, Matthew 1, a gospel. The evening for the daily office will continue the Old Testament right where you left off, Genesis 2, but the second lesson will then be an epistle selection, and so it will start with Romans 1. But then from there, it'll move consecutively. Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, Matthew 1, Romans 1, Matthew 2, Romans 2, and so forth. And it'll take you through almost the entirety of the scriptures. You'll do nearly the entire Old Testament in a year. You'll do the New Testament, except for Revelation, three times in a year. Now, why the omissions? This was designed for corporate reading, to be read in churches. And perhaps in churches where there may not be a sermon or extra Bible teaching. And so passages that were deemed 
challenging, confusing, redundant, or otherwise, uh, without the assistance of explanation, tend to be de-emphasized or omitted. And uh, I would say that modern Bible readers need to know this so that they can make sure they are reading the full scriptures at other times. The Daily Office Lectionary will order your reading to get you moving through the scriptures each day, but you'll still need to take extra time to make sure you're reading other parts of the Bible at other times. The 1662 also has selections from the Deuterocanonicals. This can be uncomfortable for modern evangelicals especially, but this actually was the Reformation position. The Deuterocanonicals were to be read in the churches. They were not to be used as sources of doctrine. No one had to be held to believe them to be absolutely true, but they were retained as uh, important Christian literature to be read to teach us about history, about morals, about ways of living. And this is not only an Anglican thing. The Belgic Confession mentions this as well. Lutheran Confessions say the same thing. And this was also the practice in the early church. You'll notice that a church father like Athanasius of Alexandria notes the difference between canonical scripture and other writings, but then he'll go on to frequently quote those other writings in support of his positions. And so the Anglican view is to retain the deuterocanonicals, but on a secondary level, not treating them as equivalent with scripture. You'll notice they don't appear on Sunday proper readings. The Sunday first lessons are all from the canonical scriptures. Uh, They will appear sometimes in Eucharistic settings for particular saints' days. Um, Actually, I take that back. I misspoke. I don't think they ever appear as a Eucharistic proper. They would appear as a first lesson uh, on a saint's day, and so you may read them in that context. But I take that back. I don't believe they appear in the Eucharistic propers. More on that in just a moment. But they do appear in the daily office and as first lessons on saints' days. Now, that's the first lectionary, and that's sort of the most regular one an individual would be encountering. The second, then, which plays into the daily office, but also would appear on Sundays, is the Psalter cycle. So you're reading uh, a collection of psalms in the morning and the evening of each day. And the way that this works is that if you do it faithfully each day, you'll read the entire book of psalms once a month. So you can consider that uh, two different lectionaries, the daily office and the Psalter cycle, or you can consider it all of a piece. The, the full daily office is Old Testament, New Testament, and also the Psalms. So that's lectionary grouping number one. Lectionary group number two, then, is the Eucharistic propers. These appear uh, in the uh, portion of the prayer book that summarizes the collects and the proper readings, and that'll be the subject of this podcast. These are the ones that appear every Sunday, certainly, and then all of the red-letter days, the feast days, Christmas, Epiphany, but also the various saints' days. These proper readings always have an epistle and a gospel. There's perhaps one exception, and that was last week, the week leading into Advent. The epistle was not really an epistle. It came from the Old Testament. Uh, It came from Jeremiah. And then sometimes also the epistle will come from the book of Revelation, uh, the Apocalypse of St. John. But you're getting two New Testament readings at that 
point. And these readings complement the collect of the day, and they highlight the theme of the, the week and of the season of the liturgical calendar. So that's the Eucharistic propers. And then the final lectionary component is what I mentioned earlier, the Sunday first lessons. So the way that a Sunday went in a traditional Anglican service, and this is retained in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, is you would do morning prayer every Sunday. This changes in the 70s, and unfortunately even the 2019 Book of Common Prayer reflects the modern change. Modern prayer books have something called the Sunday Liturgy or the Sunday Lectionary. That's totally ahistorical. Originally, Sunday was certainly a feast day and was special, but it always continued the daily office as well with particular new proper readings for the Old Testaments on Sundays. And then the Eucharistic propers are not limited to or uh, absolutely matched to a Sunday. You might do those Eucharistic propers uh, if they're for a holiday or saint's day on a day other than Sunday, uh, and you could even perhaps do them on an e evening of if you needed to. So they're not, it's not absolutely a Sunday lectionary, it's a propers, a Eucharistic propers lectionary. And so in the older Anglican tradition, you had morning prayer on Sundays, and then you would have either anti-communion, the first part of the communion service, or you would have the full communion service. So you're getting full morning prayer, the Psalms, the Old Testament, a New Testament lesson, a full chapter. And then in the communion service, you would then get your epistle gospel. So it's quite a lot of scripture every Sunday. Uh, you would be filled with the scripture if you attended a traditional Anglican service every Sunday for a year. It would be far more scripture readings than I think any any ordinary, routine Protestant church does today, including those Protestant churches which strongly value the scriptures and which preach and teach uh, expository passages. The older Anglican liturgy was just chock full of Bible, and so I think it's a tradition that should be reclaimed and promoted. And so on Sundays, when you did morning prayer, instead of doing the conventional first lesson in the daily office, the, the Old Testament that would just be coming up that day of the month. Instead of that, there are proper first lessons, and occasionally there'll be a proper second that's assigned to the day as well. The proper first lessons take you through the Old Testament in a consecutive survey with two exceptions. The beginning of the year starts with Isaiah. Isaiah is read on the first week of Advent, and it's continued to be read through Christmas and through Epiphany. And so Isaiah opens up the year, and it does so because it's filled with the prophecies of Christ, of the Messiah. This approach gives you a Christological hermeneutic for all of the Old Testament that is to come. And if you think of the, the church year, there's two halves to it. There's the incarnation cycle starting in Advent and running through Easter and Pentecost as the final week. And then the second half of the church year is Trinity season, and that's typically a time in which we teach about the growth of the church, the life of sanctification, the 
presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers, leading them towards their goal, which is righteous living and a reward for that in Christ on the last day. Now, within the first half of the year, the incarnation cycle, you could also split that in half, and you've got your sort of person of Christ emphasis, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, those all sort of go together, they reinforce one another, and then you have the work of Christ, Lent, the emphasis on his suffering leading up until Easter, Good Friday, death on the cross, Easter Sunday, resurrection, then the ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So two halves to that first cycle. Well, Isaiah is going to make up the first half for the Old Testaments. Isaiah will be read through Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. Now, moving on into the second half of the Incarnation cycle, there's pre-Lent, the Jessimas, Septuagesima, Sexagesima, Quinquagesima, and these sort of start the Old Testament in its consecutive reading. Genesis 1 is read on Septuagesima, and then Genesis 2 in the evening, the next week Genesis 3 and Genesis 6, the next week Genesis 9 and 12. So you're, you're beginning the scriptures. There's an emphasis on creation, but very quickly an emphasis on the fall and sin. And when you get into Lent proper, it's incredible. The first week of Lent, the Old Testament reading is the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative. How much darker, lower, more distressful and wretched can you get? And so Lent will be characterized by, yes, readings through Genesis and then into Exodus, but also readings which emphasize sin. I heard one pastor say that Isaiah is a season of light, but then when the Jessimas kick in, we move from light to darkness. The first lessons continue, though, as we say each week, moving you through the Old Testament, so from Genesis into Exodus, and amazingly, Archbishop Parker was just really good. He has the readings in Easter link up with the Exodus plague and Red Sea deliverance cycle. And so you're reading about the curses and the plagues the week prior to Easter, and then on Easter you're reading about the children of Israel being delivered through the Red Sea. What a great picture of, of resurrection. And then after Easter, it moves through the rest of the Torah, and finally into Trinity season, which then covers the remainder of the Old Testament, picking it up in Joshua and Judges, then spending a lot of time in Samuel and Kings, and then a selective tour through the prophets. And then the year ends, and this is another exception, not consecutive at this point, but thematic, it ends with Proverbs. So the ending of Trinity season will work its way through the book of Proverbs. Why? Well, this is a season of wisdom. After having been taught the scriptures, now we reflect on them entirely, inwardly digesting them. We've learned the law, now we can apply it in a challenging, contingent situation. I think Proverbs are also associated with kingship and rule. So Trinity season is a season of sanctification and holy living. The end of it is when we model our mature rule and governance. 
And so that's the Old Testament first lessons that work on Sundays. And amazingly, I've explained two levels of their logic. They're a, a consecutive tour through the Old Testament, and they also interact with the, the church year in a certain interesting way. Amazingly, they often, not every week, but almost, very, very frequently, they also interact with those Eucharistic propers, the epistle and the gospel, even highlighting things found in the collect for the day. And this is why I like the 1662 so much. It takes all of these elements, and they work together to give you something that's even greater than the individual parts. They create this sort of symphony of biblical theology, a symphony of Christian teaching, and they're plugged into your worship. And so what you pray is what you believe. It's what you do. This is a holistic way to teach us to worship and to teach us the doctrines of Christ and the Christian church, thoroughly biblical, working through the beginning to the end, showing you how it all ties together. And so I find it extremely exciting this has taught me so much more about the scriptures here now, uh, having been a pastor for over a decade, having preached these passages in other ways before, I'm learning new things for the first time. And it also ties me into church history. The one-year lectionary goes back all the way to the era of, of Charlemagne, uh, Gregory the Great. And sometimes you can even find elements present uh, in people like John Chrysostom. Uh, maybe he's not using exactly the same lectionary, but very often he is preaching passages which will be the proper passage for the week. So it's pretty cool to see elements going all the way back into antiquity still alive today. You'll find that Martin Luther is often preaching on that day of that church calendar the same passage that's before you and your church if you're using this lectionary. And so it ties you into something much bigger than just yourself, much bigger than your denomination, but the uh, common heritage of the Christian church. Newer prayer books and newer lectionaries uh, have their motivations, which are laudable. They're doing things which I think are good in intention, trying to solve certain contemporary problems, but they lose this heritage. And at first, it was little by little, all the way even to the 28 prayer book. It's still recognizable. You can still tie it into the older heritage. But unfortunately, by the 70s, it was letting loose the floodgates of revision, and it's almost impossible to find the earlier material in recent prayer books. And I don't think we should let that go. I don't think we should just give up that heritage uh, for purposes of history, but also for purposes of Bible, of theology, of richness. And thankfully, we do still have access to the older prayer books and lectionaries, and they're, they're more, perhaps more easily available, certainly to Americans, than ever before. 
So that's why I'm excited about this prayer book. That's why I want to do this podcast and keep it going. The next episode, we'll dive into Advent. We'll explain what's going on, the doctrine behind that. But for this episode, I just wanted to give a a sort of a bird's eye view of lectionaries, and particularly the 1662, how it works, its various features, ultimately its doctrine. So I hope if you're listening, you found this helpful. Uh, I would encourage you to go out and grab a 1662 Book of Common Prayer. The international edition is probably your best point of access, certainly if you are an American. But you can also find older versions online. Many web pages are uh, devoted to uh, chronicling those and reproducing them. So find what works for you. And what we always say at our church here in South Bend, and this isn't just a, a pleasantry or a nice, let's really mean this. I hope this comes out throughout all the episodes. We love the prayer book. We love to talk about the history and the various technical features. But at the end of the day, the prayer book is designed to be a means, a tool. It's supposed to get you to pray. It's supposed to get you to read the scriptures and to see Christ in them. It's supposed to help you worship God. That's the reason we have it. That's the main ultimate reason we use the Book of Common Prayer. And so I hope through my episodes here and elsewhere, I can help you do the same. To pray, to read the scriptures, and to worship God. Thanks for listening. We'll be here again next time. Until then, God bless.